lamb can pick its mother out of the noise. It can distinguish between which one is his mom and which one's not when they're all making all manner of noise. Uh, that's impressive. Okay, so sheep are not dumb, but they do have a tendency to act foolishly. Okay, and I, I think that's, that's where the Bible you know, likens sheep to us. It's, it's, not, it's not a question of our intelligence. Uh, God may, gave you a brain, amen. We, we are, we're above the animals. We're smarter than the animals. However, we, like sheep, have a tendency to act very foolishly. And foolishness is just simply an absence of wisdom. And I think we can all relate on this. I saw a video when prepar- pre- pre- preparing uh, this message of a sheep that had gotten its head stuck in a ditch. Okay, some of you are nodding like you've seen this little reel before, right? Well, the shepherd, it's, it's, it starts kicking and flailing. It's stuck. It can't get out. And the shepherd comes over and grabs it by the hind legs and, you know, just kind of gives a little tug and out comes the sheep. You know, and it, start, it starts running away. It's like, thanks, I got this. And about 50 yards up the road, it dives headlong back into the same ditch. And, you know, the, the, the video kind of pans over the shepherd and the shepherd's just like, really? You know? No, the shepherd does. He walks over there and goes and gets the sheep out again. And this time he doesn't let the sheep go. Yeah, you know, so there, there's, there's some exercise of wisdom right there. But, man, I watched that video and was thinking about this message and, and, and all of that. And I was just like, man, alive, does that outline my life? I mean, how many times in my, in my own life do I find myself, you know, just like, I'm in some sort of pickle. And usually it's self-inflicted. Okay, it's usually my fault, it's my own foolishness, it's my own uh, lack of preparedness or whatever, and I find myself in a mess, and I need God's deliverance. And you know what, he is a good shepherd, and thank God he always comes to my aid and helps me out of those situations. But inevitably, more times than not, the next day or the next hour, I'm right back in the same situation. I'm crying out to God again, God, please forgive me, I did it again, please help me. And I just couldn't help but see the analogy there. I'm like, ah, that's why we are like sheep in the Bible. Some facts about shepherds real quick. We'll move on. Shepherding is one of the oldest professions. Um, Historically, the first account of a shepherd is found in your Bibles if you'll read Genesis chapter 4. Not right now. Do it in your own time. But that's the story of Cain and Abel. All right. And you'll find that Cain was a tiller of the ground and Abel was a keeper of sheep. All right. Number two fact about shepherding. Shepherding is a humbling uh, profession. And uh, I, came, I came across this when I was reading uh, Matthew chapter 2 uh, this last Christmas with my, uh, with my family or whatnot. It, the, the, the term keeping watch over their flock by night. Okay, that, that struck me in a different way. You know, usually when you picture the Christmas story and that scene where, you know, the angel announces the birth of Christ, so we all have this kind of fuzzy view of that. You know, but you think about the idea of keeping watch. Any military guys in here? Is watch fun? <laughs> no, that means you're sleeping in shifts, okay? <laughs> That's what that is. And so they're keeping watch over their flock by night because there are uh, bandits, brigands, wolves, all manner of things that are out to get their sheep and the sheep of their livelihood. Uh, That's how they live. Without those sheep, they don't have a way to live, okay? The other thing is where they are. They're outside the walls. You know who else had to stay outside the walls? The lepers, the diseased, the unclean, okay? Any of you ever smelled a large group of sheep, a large flock of sheep? Uh, just say this, it's not pleasant, okay? Their wool collects everything, and we'll leave it at that, all right? It's not, it's not fun, and that's, that's where they're sleeping. 
you know, the ones who aren't on watch. That, that's where they're sleeping. They're sleeping amongst these animals. And so the idea of a humbling profession, this is, this is not a glamorous trade, okay? The shepherds are just that. They're lowly shepherds. Um, and it, it's a beautiful picture of how God is no respecter of persons. He chose to announce the birth of the Messiah to lowly shepherds. Uh, he didn't go to king's palaces. In fact, the king you read about in that story was a real piece of work who tried to kill him. He tried to kill the Messiah and many, many others. And so uh, it's a humbling profession. Okay? Shepherds must care for the flock as much as the individual. And I think the perfect analogy of this is the uh, parable that Jesus spoke about the shepherd that left the ninety and nine to go after the one. Now, you see, he didn't leave the ninety and nine helpless. You know, there is relative safety in numbers. Uh, the ninety and nine did not stray, but there is only one outcome for the one that went astray. If left in that condition for very long, he'll die. And so there's their duty bound. The shepherd is duty bound, yes, to care for the state of the flock as a whole. That's why they keep watch over their flock by night. That's why they carry the shepherd's rod. It's not just to direct the sheep, but it's also to play whack-a-wolf every now and again. You know what I mean? All right, shepherd's got to do what he's got to do. He's got to stand up to some wolves, but he cares for the individual as much as the flock. So now that we've been educated a little bit on sheep and shepherds, and you've learned some facts about them, and you can take them for what they are. They're interesting, if nothing else. I pose a question to you, congregation. What happens to a sheep with no shepherd? What happens to them? Well, ultimately, they're going to die. Okay, their domestication, they need the shepherd. Uh, they need it more, more, uh, more than just for food and for direction. Uh, they need that for their very survival. Okay, and the shepherd uh, needs, or uh, watches, watches for the sheep, but the sheep need the shepherd. So the shepherd, the sheep of Israel that we read about here in Matthew chapter 9 moved our Lord Jesus Christ to certain actions. We'll read verse, um, uh, verse 36 again. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherds. Christ makes the analogy that the people he is currently ministering to, the people he came to seek and to save, uh, those that he was there to minister to and, 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 and proclaim himself to be the Messiah and to show forth his mighty works and the miracles that he did to authenticate himself as the promised Messiah that was prophesied of old. Everything that he's been doing up to this point, he sees the multitudes and he makes the connection. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And this state of being like a shepherdless sheep, first and foremost, moves our Lord. If you'll notice that word there, he was moved with compassion on them. They moved him to compassion. Compassion is defined as this. A feeling of pity or painful sympathy towards another's misfortune or sad state of being. Okay, and uh, I'll, I'll read that again. A feeling of pity or painful sympathy towards another's misfortune or sad state of being. Uh, we know what Jesus Christ was about. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He had eternity on his mind with everything that he did. Every action he took in his life, 
here on earth was with eternity in view and on his mind. All right. And so understanding that when he sees the sheep without a shepherd and he's moved with compassion for their state of being, the state of being he is moved when is not their poverty. It's not their sickness, although those were concerns that uh, he met the needs thereof. But that is not what is the main concern that moved him to compassion. What moved him to compassion was the fact that they were lost and on their way to hell. And you kind of get the picture here. If you read verse 35 again, it says that Jesus went about all the cities. Notice that word is plural. Cities and villages. There it is, plural again. It says teaching in the synagogues, plural, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing, look at this, every sickness and every disease among the people. Our Savior wasn't kicking back enjoying life. He was busy. It sounds like he was having multiple revival meetings in multiple cities and multiple villages, uh, preaching in the synagogues and teaching the gospel of the kingdom, and that he was healing, from the context here, sounds like indiscriminately. I mean, whatever ailed the people, if you could make it to Jesus with your problem, he met the need. Didn't matter if you had a hangnail, a toothache, or if you were a leper, uh, you know, a severed limb, withered hand. Doesn't matter to Jesus. If you came to him with your need, you could bet on it that he was going to meet that need because he cared for the sheep. But he came to meet a much greater need than that which physically ailed them. And Jesus Christ, as you can kind of get this feeling, he's, he's, he's healing people indiscriminately. He's doing this from sun up to sun down. And at, uh, by the end of the day, you know, you can kind of get that picture. At the end of the day, I mean, he's been doing this all day. He's been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been healing. And he just kind of looks out and he sees the multitudes. Anytime you see that word multitude in the Bible, you kind of get the idea of thousands of people. Okay, it's a multitude. It's not just a few hundred, it's thousands of people. And there's the multitudes. And he sees them for what they are. They're sheep that are scattered abroad. And they're faint because they don't have a shepherd. And it moves him to compassion because he recognizes something. He recognizes that as a man, he cannot reach them all. He cannot physically meet their needs. Now, this is very important to understand that we're speaking of Christ's humanity. Okay? As the Almighty, as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords, His blood is sufficient to cover the sins of anybody who will come and ask for forgiveness. And we praise God that the blood of Christ is inexhaustible and it is still as potent and as sin cleansing as it was then it is today and we can praise God for that but at this particular time understand in Christ's ministry he limited himself he forewent some of his godlike attributes in order to have a earthly ministry here and one of those things was his omnipresence he confined himself to one point he gave himself a physical body and he was in that body limited as to what he could do for these people as a man. And he sees the need, and he sees, I've been doing this all day, all morning, all afternoon, all evening, and I'm looking out about the multitudes, and uh, they all have needs. They all have a need that needs to be met, and I physically cannot do it. This is the reason for his compassion. Notice, his compassion moved him to something else. His compassion moved him to speak. Look at verse 37 with me. First, two, or first three words, it says, Then saith he. That means Jesus said something. In case we were wondering. Then saith he. But the to who he says it, or the to whom he says it, 
is interesting because his compassion moved him to speak, but it did not move him to speak to the multitudes. They are not his target audience. Look at this. Then saith he unto his disciples. Unto his disciples. What did he say? He says, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. In verse 37, Jesus gives the problem. The problem is, there's a whole lot of people and not a lot of laborers. Uh, there's a whole lot of problems out there. There's a whole lot of needs out there and not enough people to meet them. And you know what's awesome? God never gives the problem. He never states the problem. Christ never states the problem without also giving us an obvious solution. And the solution stated in verse 38, he says, pray ye. Pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. You know, I find it interesting that the solution to the lack of laborers is prayer. I think I'm not outside my, uh, my thought process here in, in stating this, but prayer is probably the most effective and most underused tool that we have in the Christian arsenal today. I mean, think about it. Think, think about the privilege it is that we have. we have. We have the priesthood of the believer. We can come to God whenever we want. We can go to him unashamed. We can approach the throne of grace and ask, make any petition we can think of before God Almighty. God's chosen people of Israel didn't even have that right. They had to go through it. I've been reading the book of Leviticus lately in my personal Bible reading. They had to go through all manner of practices and sacrifices to make sure before they could go and make their petition to the priest who would then make it for God. On their behalf, they had to make sure they were acceptable in the sight of God by making those sacrifices. And let me tell you, I read that and I go, boy, what an ordeal. You know, I mean, they, when, when they wanted to go to God, I mean... It was a privilege. It was something that they did not take lightly because they had to go through it in order to get to God. And we treat it so flippantly. It is an honor and a privilege. It's probably the most underused thing that we have at our disposal. But here's the interesting thing. He says the answer to this problem is prayer. He says, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will what? That he will send forth laborers into the harvest. We have problems all over the country, reaching, reaching people, reaching cities. You know, there's just, it, it's, it's this, the same problem Jesus had is the same problem we have today. There's, there's a whole lot of people out there and not enough laborers to reach them with the gospel. So what's the solution? Pray for more laborers. You know what's amazing about this? And again, you'll, you'll forgive my kind of reading into the scriptures, but the, back to the to whom he said it. He's saying this to the disciples who at this point, you know, they're, they're the closest people to the Lord Jesus Christ at this time. You can't get closer than the 12 disciples uh, to Jesus Christ. They're his inner circle. Uh, they're his confidants. They're his ministers. They're the ones uh, where, it, you know, they're, they're the instruments of many of the miracles he did when he fed the 5,000. Uh, you know, he, he prayed and blessed and break and then gave to the disciples and said, go give this to 5,000 people. And it never, it never ran out. You know, they're the instruments of, of his miracle. I mean, you imagine the privilege it must have been to be them. 
But you know, you, I, I kind of paint this picture in my mind of this scene right now. It's like Christ is preaching and Christ is, you know, healing people and he's teaching and he's, he's expounding the word of God and the things that are concerning himself and making obvious the way of salvation and what he's going to do. He's saying, hey, I am the Messiah. Uh, you know, I, I am. The miracles I'm performing right now, they authenticate me. This is what was foretold of all the prophets. And, you know, I kind of get the idea that while he's doing this, you, know, you can kind of see the 12 disciples kind of standing back a little bit and just gawking. Did you see what Jesus just did? Wow, I could watch him forever. You know, but if you're watching, you're not working. You know? <laughs> so I think it's interesting because at this point, the disciples are not the apostles of the book of Acts that we read about. They're not there yet. They haven't grown to that point yet. Uh, these are not the church leaders. They're the lowly disciples of Christ who time and time again seem to miss it. Right? You know, you could say they're still in their Bible college days. Uh, you know, they got all the zeal in the world, but none of the common sense to use it. You know, it's like, praise the Lord, they need some refining. But I think it's so interesting that what he said to them, he didn't give them a kick in the pants and say, hey, get out there and minister although he could have, he urged them to pray. And uh, as far as I can tell in the New Testament, this is the only prayer request that Christ makes of us. Let that one sink in. It's not the only time he prayed. But as far as a request from God Almighty for us to pray for, he was concerned about the souls of men. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. I think he asked them to pray because when we as Christians pray for something in earnest, we can't help but be part of the solution. Let me illustrate this for a second, okay? Church uh, uh, need, needs, a, needs a building project. Uh, church needs uh, something, and we've got people, no doubt, in here that have some sort of trade skill. Uh, we have people, uh, no doubt, with some financial means, maybe not much, but some, all right? And anytime you set forth to build something, it's going to cost something. It's going to cost labor. It's going to cost time. It's going to cost money. Uh, we know that the church has this need. And, boy, we're going to pray for that need. Absolutely, Pastor, you put this need before the church, and uh, it's something we're going to pray about. And uh, the Lord is going to give us uh, what we pray for because uh, what we're praying for is going to further the ministry here in South Dakota. And we, by faith, can believe that and know that. But then when we pray for it in earnest, and I'm talking about the Holy Spirit is in your heart, and it's working, and you are just burdened for this burden. And as a church, we're burdened for what the pastor's vision is and what the need is. And we want to we wanna pray that that need gets met. And then, wait, we, we got to be a part of the solution. Uh, we got to be, a, we, I want to have a part in, uh, in, the, in the Lord meeting that need. I mean, I'm gonna, I, I have something I can offer. I want to be a part of this. Because if we don't, oh, if we give lip service and are unwilling to be a part of the solution, doesn't that make us a hypocrite? Doesn't it? I mean, yeah, pastor, I'll pray, but don't ask me to get into my wallet. Oh, I'll, 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 I'll pray for that, but, you know, I, I, you know, Saturdays are my days. I mean, I don't really have time to come out and uh, be a part of the work effort. We have no respect for someone like that. If we came out and said it, I mean, that, that attitude exists in a lot of places, whether we're aware of it or not. But none of us would actually say that out loud publicly. 
But if we did, we'd all be thinking the same thing. You hypocrite. Oh, we wouldn't say that. Oh, the point is, I'm not here to bash anybody today. I'm here to say that Christ knows what he's talking about when he urged them to pray. Because if they would get praying like they're supposed to and and God sets that desire in their heart, then they can't help but be part of the solution. See, the disciples were never meant to be sideline sitters in this effort. They were supposed to be, uh, you know, forerunners in the effort. Uh, they're, they're, They're supposed to be key players. And that's exactly what they became. Read the book of Acts. You know, they may not be that now, but they did eventually become that. They became laborers themselves. Why? Because I think all the way back in Matthew chapter number 9, he urged them to pray for laborers. He presented the need. He showed them what he saw. He showed them his burden. He showed them his compassion. And then urged them to pray for the solution. And they did. Peter preached Pentecost. Think that crossed his mind at this point? Think he would see 3,000 people get saved through his preaching after all that Peter went through, even denying Christ? And falling off the bow and get so backslidden he wanted to go back to fishing? But he did. God wasn't done with Peter. How about John, right? All the disciples, all the disciples forsook him in the garden. John would preach the word of God faithfully and end up exiled on the island of Patmos. And it's there that he would receive the revelation of Jesus Christ and be the one who is entrusted to write it down for you and for me today. And not just see it, but experience it. Wow. How about the other disciples, right? They all died martyrs' deaths. Which means they stood before kings and before princes and before governors and were given an opportunity to recant Jesus Christ and knock it off and, re- and refuse, to, refuse to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And every single one of them said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And even if it means my death, so be it. Many of them suffered, per- uh, suffered the same death as Jesus. They were crucified. You know anything about Roman crucifixion? It is a horrible, horrible way to die. Peter counted himself not worthy to die the same death of Christ and petitioned his killers to be crucified upside down. What faith? What faith? Pray ye there the Lord, therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth labors into his harvest. Christ's speech led his disciples to pray and then later to go. That's exactly what they did. So, in conclusion, we need to be moved by what moves Christ. We need to have the same kind of compassion, the same kind of burden, the same kind of zeal, the same kind of willingness to pray for more laborers into that harvest and the same surrendered spirit to go forth and tell other people how they can be saved. Just like the Lord Jesus. Now, we talked about conclusion I want to give you quickly three points of application. All right, I hope I painted a vivid picture of the scriptures before you and kind of what was going on in this portion of text. And now we're going to talk about, quickly, how this applies to you and me and today. Number one, I would say we need to be moved with compassion for the shepherd, the sheep, for the lost. Christ was moved with compassion when he saw the multitudes. And when he saw just how many people were in that Sad, 
depraved state of being lost? Why you just take a minute and think back to before you were saved? Some of us got saved at a young age, praise God for that, but many of us weren't. Many of us know and still bear the scars of sin. And we can remember vividly how life was worthless, empty, meaningless outside of Christ. Oh, we live for self and we live for things and we live for everything but our Lord and Savior. And like Solomon, we would come to the same conclusion. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is to say, it's empty, it's meaningless, it's worthless. A life lived for self is empty. We would all do well to get back to some compassion. And I'd say I'm pretty safe saying that apathy is a scourge in our churches today. Oh, so many of us, you know, we, we hear and we see, we just don't care. Not like we should. I wouldn't say that we don't care. We, we do care. We're here. We're here in church. We care. We don't care like we should. You know, many of us are content to get angry at the situation. We get angry at sin. We get angry at the way our nation and the world is going. We get angry at the smut and all the nasty, filthy, rotten, vile wickedness that is displayed and forced down our children's throats and forced down our throats and we're told we have to accept it. Oh, we're quick to get angry at that sort of thing. But hey, how about we stop and recognize for a second that those are heathen people and they are doing exactly what heathen people do. Oh, maybe, maybe the reason they're like that is because so many of us aren't in the fields doing the labor like we should. Maybe there's so many of them pushing those agendas is because we've stopped praying for laborers. We've stopped willing to be laborers ourselves. And that's why we're in the condition we're in as a nation, as a people, as a species, the human race. I say if there's any problems in the world, I would... I place the blame on Christianity as we're not the servants, we're not the laborers we should be. Oh, we could all do more if we're being honest with ourselves. We all could do more. I haven't arrived. I know, I know I could do more. I strive to do more and I, my flesh gets the better of me more times than I care to admit. Oh, I'm, I'm, preaching, I'm preaching to the choir here, I know. I know, but I'm trying to get us to be honest with ourselves. We'd all do well to get back to compassion. But dear friend, if all we do is get back to compassion, we're not doing anybody any favors. Because that feeling of sympathy, that feeling of pity, doesn't actually help them. That's just, you know, good for us. Now we recognize the need, we recognize their plight, we recognize the state that they're in, and we're, we're, we're sorry. That's just the first step. It's become sorry again. We need to then speak the need like Christ did to those who are closest to us. Well, first of all, compassion will work on us and make us realize that we need to do more. And after we've realized we need to do more, we've surrendered to do more ourselves, then we need to start looking around and going, who am I going to teach and speak the need to? Who do I have in my circle of influence that I can lead and shape and, and mold in that direction of being a soul winner? Being a witness. I would say this applies to anybody in a leadership role. Applies to the preacher. To the Sunday school teacher. To the bus worker. To the deacons. 
to the parents. Oh boy, that's just about everybody. If you're a parent, you're in a God-appointed leadership position. And you've been entrusted with your children. And your grandchildren. We're not leaving anybody out. What are we speaking the need of? We're speaking the need of people to surrender their will. To surrender our will. Hey, think about it. God's not asking for much. We have what, you know, on average 70 years? And compared with eternity, it's such a small little blip of life. Right, he would ask us to surrender our will now to do his will to reach others so that we could live with him in eternity and rule and reign with him later. Well, if we submit our will, the Bible promises that he give us the desires of our heart. Now, God never takes anything without giving us something better in return. He may ask you to give up a dream. He may ask you to surrender some aspiration of yours, young people, or some desire, some career path. You may have to give that up in order to do the will of the Lord. If you do, He will give you something far greater, far better than what you could dream for yourself. His will is perfect. We are foolish to think that we know better. That is foolish. We must speak the need to those closest to us. We must speak this need. We must impress this need upon the next generation because here's a fact. We're not going to be around forever. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. And the next generation must take up the mantle. I spoke on an individual basis. How about on a, on a congregation basis? All right. How about on the church? Did you know churches have lifespans just like people? We can all think about it. If we're honest, we can all think about a church that was once thriving, once preaching the Bible, once winning souls and supporting missionaries and doing all manner of great works now. And now where are they? They're gone. Something happened along the way, transition of a pastor or what have you, and it just, it died. All the churches in Acts aren't around today. Those were started by the apostles. They're not around today. They're not there. There was a church in Rome, Italy. Paul started. It's not there. It's gone. And it's been gone for a long time. So the question is, as a church, if we fail to speak the need to those closest to us and impart this truth on the next generation, then there will be a void where we once were. And the devil will happily fill it with something else. What's going to be here when we're gone? Finally, we need to pray for people to send and to instruct for the work. You see, that comes back to prayer. What's the solution to the problem of laborers? Prayer. Well, maybe as a church... And I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of what goes on here, but, you know, there have been churches I've talked to, maybe, you know, they're a brand new church, or maybe they just don't have, a, don't, don't have anybody who's qualified to be able to send out of their church, or to send out a missionary, or anything, those things. That, that's a real problem. It exists. But maybe the reason we don't have anybody to send is because we haven't prayed for them. Or you think God wants to send us somebody that we could send out to reach another part of the state? 
or to send out to reach another part of the world in another country? Don't you think God wants to answer that prayer request? I think God's for more missionaries, not less. Amen? Amen. So maybe the reason we don't have anybody is because we haven't prayed for them. By the way, if we pray for them, don't be surprised if God calls you into full-time Christian service. Don't be surprised. If you pray for something in earnest, remember, you can't help but be part of the solution. Now, does that mean you're going to have to uproot everything and go uh, live in Africa somewhere? No, not necessarily. But hey, that might mean, oh, uh, I'll teach a Sunday school class, Pastor. Um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll run a bus route. I'll sacrifice some of my time to go reach some people, to have an impact. Uh, maybe, maybe you can't get up and get out like you used to. Maybe, maybe you know, age, age takes its toll. Or maybe there's some young person that comes in on the bus or whatever, has got a rough family life, rough home life. Or maybe you could be an encouragement to them. It'd be a surrogate grandmother or grandpa. Love on that child. And who knows? Do you know... Uh, you know the name Jack Hiles? What a big ministry in Indiana. He went, won tons of people to Christ, ran buses all over that area. Did you know he was reached by a Sunday school teacher, an elderly lady, who loved on him as a little boy who didn't have any shoes? One of the giants of the faith. Man alive. Don't underestimate the impact you can have. The question is, is will we surrender to it? Will we pray for people to send and to instruct? That word instruct is important. You know, say, well, I just, I just don't know how to lead someone to Christ. Or I just don't know how to be that kind of influencer. Or maybe I didn't do so well with my own kids. How am I supposed to help and influence my grandkids when I was a failure as a parent? There's a thing called instruction. Ah, maybe you don't know what you don't know, but you know what? You can always learn from somebody. It, how many people here work a secular job? Okay, you work any job. Now, when you first took that job, did you know how to do it perfectly? Did you know how to do it like you know how to do it now? No, you had to go through some sort of training where somebody told you what you didn't know. And whether you were aware of it or not, it took an amount of humility to be able to understand that I don't know how to do this, and if I want to learn how to do this and make an income and put food on the table, then I need to listen. Why is the ministry any different? You don't know how to be a Sunday school teacher. Somebody knows how to be a Sunday school teacher. Submit yourself under them. Huh? Submit yourself under your pastor and allow him to teach you what you don't know so that you can be a success in the ministry, so that you can be a help to somebody else, so that you could mean the difference in someone's life. You just might be the difference between a whole bunch of people's eternity if you reach that one who'll sell out to God. Well, maybe there's some of us here who are young. How about you be the one to sell out for God? How about it? God's called me and my family to reach the lost sheep of Sardinia. Oh, we got our work cut out for us. Hundreds of years, there's not been a gospel witness anywhere on that island. Entire generations have lived and died and gone to a devil's hell. Whole generations. 
Oh, Lord willing, we'll change that. We'll reach some. We'll reach some, but hey, we need more. I don't call anybody into the ministry. I'll tell you, there's a need in Sardinia for more missionaries. We can't be the last ones to go. There's got to be those who follow. There's got to be. Well, countless more are going to go to a devil's hell forever. How about it, church? Will you join with me in praying for laborers? Will you join with me in praying for laborers? That's the solution Christ gave. That's what we need to do. Pray for laborers to send and also to instruct in the work. Hey, let's have some compassion on people again. Let's ban apathy from our hearts. And let's all commit. There's somebody we can influence. We must speak the need to those closest to us. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We're going to finish up.